Good morning. Please open your Bibles with me for our scripture reading this morning. Uh, our sermon text is from 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 19 through 25. So follow along with me in your Bibles or feel free to look up on the screen. For this is a gracious thing when, mindful of God, one endures sorrows while suffering unjustly. For what credit is it if, when you sin and are beaten for it, you endure? But if when you do good and suffer for it, you endure, this is a gracious thing from the sight of God. For to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. When he committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree, that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed. For you were straying like sheep, but have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. This is the word of the Lord. We're in the midst of a series right now through the summer uh, called Ten Reasons Jesus Came to Die. Uh, There are more, but that's the time that we have this summer. Each week we'll be walking through a different reason, Um, and today we're learning that Jesus died to call us to follow his example, uh, his example of sacrificial love. We live in an age where literary heroes are complicated. Uh, They're complicated people. Um, You pick up any book, you watch any show, and, and you'll find yourself growing attached to morally ambiguous characters. And I don't think it was always this way. Um, I grew up on uh, G.A. Henty. Anyone have ever heard of G.A. Henty before? Okay, yeah. Some of you guys. It uh, makes us all nerds here, so uh, congratulations. Uh, G.A. Henty, uh, he, he wrote historical fiction, The Dragon and the Raven, Winning His Spurs, just great stuff. I mean, it's just like good like uh, adolescent boy material. The main character always did the right thing, Uh, He always got the girl. The romance side plot took about three pages to develop, which is all it needed. The antagonist always had the evil scar running down his face. He was clearly the bad guy, and good always triumphed over evil. Now, I'm not here to theorize on why people prefer morally questionable characters these days. Lots of ink has been spilled on that, so I'll, I'll spare you my thoughts. But I will say this. It's quite difficult to get people to agree on what is good these days. It's quite difficult to get people to agree on what's bad these days. Our culture, I think we would all agree here, is in a self-inflicted state of moral flux. Back and forth, back and forth. And if you try to define goodness in our culture, you're going to find very few people will agree with your definition of goodness. If you try to define evil in our culture, very few people will agree with your definition of evil. In fact, a good many people are willing to fight you for your definition. But if there is one thing that everyone agrees on, even today, in any book, any movie, even in real life, we'll agree on this. If a person makes a sacrifice, especially the ultimate sacrifice, in the name of love, we all agree that's good. 
We love to argue about what's good. We love to argue about what's bad. We love to argue about anything these days. But anybody these days can make passes at a waterproof argument, but very few people are willing to argue with the apologetic of sacrifice. We come to 1 Peter this morning. That's where we are, 1 Peter chapter 2. You can open up there if you haven't already. And we are reading a manual on living rightly even when accusations get very loud. Many scholars believe that this letter was penned right around uh, July of AD 64, the summer that Rome burned. Many historians believe that the emperor, Nero, was the one who started that fire to make room for his extravagant growth, his extravagant plans to build Rome in his own image. Uh, But people became very angry about it, and it became public policy uh, from the emperor himself to blame Christians for starting the fire. And suddenly, in AD 64, Christians were facing a heavy wave of, of sharp, even gruesome persecution. And in the midst of this season of suffering, Peter writes a letter encouraging Christians how to live well, even when the heat gets turned up. Peter writes this letter, and and here we find a very different apologetics strategy than the one that we're used to getting from a lot of Christians today. We we listen to our Christianity Today podcasts, and we're finding a very different apologetic strategy. Uh, You know, Peter gives us a very different one. He says, to shut down your fiercest critics, you, you use two easy steps. Step one, watch what Jesus does. Step two, do it. Instead of talking about all the good we're going to do, instead of lamenting all the bad that we are doing, follow Jesus wherever he goes. John MacArthur says it best. He says that first Peter teaches us that one way that the enemy attacks the church is to find, quote, Christians whose lives are not consistent with the word of God, and then parade them before unbelievers to show what a sham the church is. Christians, however, must stand against the enemy and silence the critics by the power of their holy lives, end quote. The greatest apologetic in your disposal is a life of sacrificial love. And this is only possible because Jesus came to die. So we're in 1 Peter chapter 2. Christians are suffering. They're getting, at this time, burned on crosses. They're getting fed to wild animals. They're forced into gladiator matches. They're losing their possessions. They're losing their homes. They're losing their lives. And into this suffering, Peter asserts that Christians have a high calling. Into this suffering, Peter asserts that you and I as Christians are royalty. We're royalty. Look at verse 9 with me. 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 9, he says, But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession. And try matching that pedigree. Just this last week, I was talking to a brother about, you know, where we come from. I think my mom's side is from Ireland. My dad's side, we, we think, might be Welsh. Um, I had a family member years ago who believed that we were related to King James and would sign his letters, Prince James. And we laugh at that. But Christians have an amazing pedigree. We're royalty. We're a priesthood. We're a people for God's own possession. Therefore, Peter tells us, submit to every authority. Not 
name it, claim it, not maximize your potential, not hustle, submit humbly and love sacrificially. We have these amazing titles, this incredible heritage, this high calling so that we can enjoy the ultimate experience of human happiness, which is to love no matter the cost. The culmination of our high calling, the fact that we're royalty, the fact that we're God's own possessions, the culmination is sacrificial love. Peter moves through increasingly difficult scenarios to illustrate his point. Look at verse 13. He tells us to submit to the emperor. The emperor represents a far away expression of God-given authority. I don't think anyone in this room has ever met our president or probably any of our past presidents, and yet we're called to submit to even the president whose authority is over us. In verse 14, we see we're called to submit to governors, closer expressions of the emperor's power. And in that day, governors and regions often abused their positions of power for personal gain. And even then, Christians are called to submit to them. In verse 18, it gets very difficult. Peter calls Christians to submit even to their own slave owners, for there were many Christians who were slaves. This is the most difficult expression of submission in Peter's context. And, and Peter uses it not to make a comment on the morality or immorality of slavery as an institution, but to provide an expression of Christ-like behavior that confronts us in an uncomfortable way. Dennis Edwards, in his commentary on this passage, says this, Peaceful submission to even the harshest of masters is evidence of genuine Christian faith. The point is to grasp what Christ-like behavior looks like in one of the most difficult situations imaginable. Slaves, though in a horrible, unenviable position, have the peculiar honor of serving as living examples of what Jesus is like." End quote. So Peter wants to teach us three things about this calling that we have uh, to sacrificial life. The first thing is sacrificial love is our calling in Jesus. It's our calling. Look at verse 19 with me. For this is a gracious thing, when mindful of God, one endures sorrows while suffering unjustly. For what credit is it if, when you sin and are beaten for it, you endure? But if, when you do good and suffer for it, you endure, this is a gracious thing in the sight of God. For to this you have been called. Peter says that enduring sorrow while suffering injustice is a, quote, gracious thing. It's an interesting word in English because in Greek, this is the same word used, translated grace. It is a thing of grace. But it is used here and in Luke 2 and in Luke 6 to communicate favor before someone else. Grace that is favorable before someone else. Right? In, in Luke chapter 2, verse 52, uh, Luke tells us that Jesus grew in wisdom and stature and in favor with God and man. He grew in favor. He grew in grace before God and man. So to endure suffering is grace. It is a thing of divine favor. It is something that pleases God. The idea is that it is commendable in the sight of God when his people suffer injustice and endure it. It's something that God wholeheartedly approves of. 
to endure. That's a verb only used three times in the New Testament. It means to bear up under. When a pressure is applied and we are sustained and we bear up under that thing, that's endurance. 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 11, it's used to describe Paul's response to persecutions and sufferings. In 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 13, it's used to describe the Christian's tolerance of whatever trial overtook them. It's not just experiencing sorrow in the midst of injustice. Everyone experiences sorrow in the midst of injustice. It is doing it while mindful of God, recognizing that God is there and that He is watching. It is doing it quorum Deo before God. We may be mistreated because of our faith, but it is precisely that faith that God loves to reward. Peter doesn't feel it's necessary to tell us exactly what this reward entails, but as Christians, we can trust that whatever recognition God gives us is worth the trial we endure. We endure trials because God is watching. We cast ourselves on His mercy. We endure for God because God is watching, because we love God, not out of obligation because we have to, but willingly because we want to please our heavenly master. And Peter makes an important distinction. In verse 20, he says this. Verse 20 says, for what credit is it if when you, are, when you sin and are beaten for it, you endure? But if when you do good and suffer for it, you endure, this is a gracious thing in the sight of God. So it's no credit to you if you endure punishment for your own sin. Th that's just justice. When I cheat on an exam and I get caught, I have to retake the class. That's not a matter of grace, that's a matter of justice. Doing good and suffering for it with endurance is a gracious thing in God's sight. It's not just the suffering that pleases God, it's enduring underneath it. It's, it's uh, uh, making it through. But we're going to make an important distinction there soon, so keep listening. What does it mean to endure suffering? If I suffer for the sake of Christ and rage against God because of my suffering, if I rage against mankind because of my suffering, that's not pleasing to God. That's because this is a matter of love. Our endurance is an act of love before God. And this isn't just something that might happen to Christians. Look at verse 21. For to this you have been called. This is the Christian calling. I'm telling you, Christian, we can expect suffering for Christ. We can anticipate suffering for Christ, and we can prepare for suffering in Christ. Our calling is to follow Jesus in making disciples. Our calling is to follow Jesus in being holy. Our calling is to follow Jesus take up our cross, deny ourselves, and follow him no matter what. So sacrificial love, that's our calling in Jesus. Peter also tells us that sacrificial love is our example in Jesus. Look at verse 21 again. To this you have been called because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. Enduring unjust suffering is our calling because Jesus died for us. 
That's the connection here in verse 21. He died for us, leaving us an example to follow. It says, so that you might follow in his steps. I mean, that's powerful imagery. I think of as, as a child trying to uh, keep up with my dad when he walked, right? Have you ever walked out in snow as a child and someone older than you, bigger than you, makes giant strides and you strive to step in those same footprints? That's the imagery we're getting here. A lot of us are watching the Olympics right now. I know I am. Uh, and a lot of athletes are watching the Olympians as they compete. They're watching their gait. They're watching their run. They're watching their stride so that they can emulate it, right? We're called to match the strides of Jesus, to walk in the steps that he walked. And as we read the rest of this text, it may sound familiar to some of you because Peter loves quoting from the Old Testament. And in this passage, he quotes Isaiah 53, specifically verses 9, 4, 5, and 6. Jesus' whole life was lived perfectly, yet throughout his whole life, he endured brutal treatment. Uh, the writer of Isaiah describes him as a suffering servant, as a man well acquainted with grief. And you know, the, the culmination of Jesus' suffering, the culmination of unjust treatment, was the humiliation of Judas's betrayal, the merciless beatings, and the brutal crucifixion. Jesus didn't just come to live on our behalf, he came to die on our behalf. Yet even in the midst of this suffering, Jesus only ever responded in love. And Peter gives us three examples of the ways that Jesus responded in love, even in the midst of intense suffering. Look at verse 22. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. So he committed no sin either by his actions or by his words. The way that this verse is phrased, deceit in his mouth, emphasizes the idea that there was no dichotomy between his actions and his words. He wasn't cursing under his breath when no one was watching. He wasn't one way in front of his disciples and then going to God on the mountaintop and, and just raging against God. His life was consistent all the way through. In fact, Matthew 27, 14 tells us that when Pilate questioned Jesus, it says that Jesus made no reply, not even to a single charge to the great amazement of the governor. Even when he was charged with ludicrous things, even when the witnesses against him offered conflicting evidence, Jesus didn't go, uh, do you hear what this guy is saying? He silently endured. But he, he didn't respond wrongly with his lips. He didn't respond wrongly with his actions. He didn't return evil for evil. Look at verse 23. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten. So first, he did not respond to cruel words with holy put-downs. This is a temptation for believers, especially when we go online, we watch a video or read a post, and we see someone offering conflicting evidence against Christians. We see them lying about Christians, slandering Christians. It's even more frustrating when we see Christians slandering Christians. And the temptation is to get on there and just give them a holy smackdown in Jesus' name. But when Jesus was reviled, he did not revile in return. And when he suffered, he did not threaten. He never responded to cruelty against his person with vengeance. He could have, and it would have been just 
Again, in Matthew 26, verse 53, Jesus says, Do you think that I cannot appeal to my Father, and He will at once send me more than 12 legions of angels? We could go around telling the world, you really think this kind of accusation is going to hold up? I am part of a royal priesthood. I am God's holy possession. I'm a child of God. My father is the biggest kid on the block. Who are you messing with over here? We can do that, but we don't have to. Jesus could have called down angels to wipe out his enemies, but he didn't. Even on the cross, he was provoked in the midst of suffering cruelty to do this very thing. Matthew 27, this is a longer passage, but I think it's worth reading. Matthew 27, verses 39 through 43. Jesus is on the cross, and those who passed by derided him. They wagged their heads, saying, You who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself. If you were the Son of God, come down from that cross. So also the chief priests with the scribes and the elders mocked him, saying, He saved others. He can't save himself. He is the King of Israel. Let him come down from the cross, and we will believe him. He trusts in God. Let him deliver him now if he desires. For he has said, I am the Son of God. Even against those kind of accusations on the cross from the thieves who were being crucified next to him, Jesus did not offer a word, but silently endured. The third thing that Jesus did is that he entrusted himself to God. Verse 23 ends with this statement, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. The language here emphasizes repeated, continued action. In other words, he entrusted himself to God again and again and again. Each time he suffered physically, each time he suffered verbally, he entrusted himself to the just judge. Wayne Grudem notes that Peter is probably not just referring to Jesus entrusting himself to God, but also entrusting the onlookers to God, the perpetrators to God, the whole situation to God, the whole case to God. Jesus entrusted all of it to God, everything that happened. Brothers and sisters, people often act unfairly. People often judge with partiality, and people with right motives very often miss key details that lead to false accusations and injustice. And, and brother, if, if we're honest with ourselves, we don't really trust anyone with the information around us. We want to write down all the details. We want to make sure that we know what's going on, because honestly, we feel like we're the better judges of what's going on around us. So we take all the careful notes ourselves. We trust only ourselves to judge cases justly, but very often there are details even we are missing. Very often our motives are not entirely pure. And that doesn't make us cynics. It makes us needy before the Lord because God always acts justly. He judges from a seat where nothing is missed. There is not a detail that passes God. Uh, under his watchful eye, all that Christians endure is seen, is acknowledged, and guaranteed to be rewarded. Jesus, who never sinned, did not take these cases into his own hands, but entrusted all of it to the one who would absolutely act justly on his behalf. And this is what Christians are called to as well. 
brothers and sisters, revenge is gratifying. It is, but it's not Christ-like. We glorify heroes in our day who take vengeance on their enemies, especially in violent ways. We, we love to watch those movies, read those books. We love the Monte Cristo story, right? The Count of Monte Cristo. We love vengeance. We love seeing the person who was inflicted injustice against inflicting justice in his own way. We love vigilante justice. Did you know that when I was in my 20s, the number one, excuse me, the number two leading cause of death among my generation, millennials, when I was in my teens and my early 20s, the number two cause of death among millennials was homicide. Number two, when I was in my teens and 20s, the number two way my peers were dying was by killing each other. We're in a violent society. We're in a vengeful society. There's, there's no lack of stories of vigilante justice. I mean, I don't see things really getting better. I'm entering my 30s now, and sometimes I, I barely go online these days without feeling a virtual knife in my back. Sometimes I wonder if we even know how to settle disputes without resorting to violence, violent threats, violent thoughts. Christ sends out Christians with a radically different message. When we endure injustice, we trust the just judge to deal rightly. This doesn't mean that we keel over when we are abused. It doesn't mean we just give in to abuse. It doesn't mean we perpetuate abuse. It doesn't mean we pretend like there are no problems, even in our country today. But it does mean that whatever strategy we're, we pursue in the name of justice, vengeance is not part of it. And sacrificial love is all over it. Now, there's a catch here, brothers and sisters, because we could just go out in the name of Jesus and do good things, but it wouldn't last and it wouldn't be pleasing to God. There's a catch. Sacrificial love is our calling in Jesus. It's our example in Jesus. But no one can accept Jesus as an inspiration only and actually achieve what God is calling us to here. No person can do this on their own. There's a key there's a key to unlock the power to actually fulfill our high calling of sacrificial love. God sent Jesus to die, and his death makes our sacrifice possible. Friends, sacrificial love is only possible in Jesus through the death of Jesus. Look at verse 24 with me. Verse 24 says, He himself bore our wounds in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed. So Jesus' death accomplishes three things for us according to verse 24. The first thing that Jesus' death accomplishes for us is that it makes us dead to sin. People say of someone they have abandoned, we say that person is dead to me, Right? And that's actually a pretty good way to understand this Greek word, the way it's being used. Our relationship to sin is dead. We've abandoned it. To be dead to sin is to be unresponsive to it. It's to not have a relationship with it. It is not to be provoked by it or ruled by it. It is a sin as, is as odious as to our souls as a dead corpse is to our senses. We don't want anything to do with it. It's, it's dead to us. 
Jesus endured suffering not just as an example to us. He bore in his body the sins of mankind, enduring the wrath of God on our behalf. His suffering was a sacrifice on our behalf. He carried our sins so we can lay them down. Jesus' death makes us dead to sin, and it also makes us alive to righteousness. Look at verse 24 again. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. To a sleeping person, light is unbearable, right? When, when, the, when the curtains get flung open, we pull the comforter over our eyes. But to someone who is wide awake, light is rejuvenating. When the sun comes up, it's warming. It wakes us up. It, it lights us from the inside. And in the same way, righteousness is odious to dead people. In fact, uh, Paul describes righteousness to be an aroma of death to those who are perishing. We recoil from it. We run from it. When we see righteousness, do you know what we do to it? We betray it. We beat it. And then we crucify it. But to those whose hearts have been regenerated, we are alive to righteousness. We welcome the light in dark places. We soak in the sun of righteousness. We are rejuvenated as we meditate on whatever is true, on whatever is noble, on whatever is right, on whatever is lovely. Philippians 4 verse 8. So Jesus' death makes us dead to sin. It's odious to it. It's, it's dead to us. We've abandoned it. We're alive to righteousness. We want it. We want to soak in it. We want the light of righteousness shining on our hearts. And the third thing that Jesus' death does is it makes us whole. It makes us whole. More specifically, by his wounds, you have been healed. Now, I think we make a major misstep here when we read, by his wounds, you are healed, and we think that Christ's death guarantees physical healing. That's not the purpose of Isaiah's prophecy, and that's not the point that Peter is making. In an eternal sense, Jesus' wounds buy us eternal life. So yes, all of our diseases will one day be healed in the new heavens and the earth because Jesus died to bring us there. And yes, God often heals believers through our prayers, but what we are promised today is the healing of our sick souls. The wounds that Jesus endured on the cross heal our souls of every disease that sin infects us with. Paralysis of the soul, the inability to respond to vo God's voice and faith, healed through the wounds of Jesus. Numbness of the heart, a lack of love and mercy in our hearts towards our brothers and sisters and towards the world, healed because of the wounds of Jesus. Narcolepsy of the soul, chronic boredom about the things of God, healed through the wounds of Jesus. The wounds of Jesus, what he bore on the cross in our place, rejuvenates our souls and causes us to live again. And when we are alive, when the Holy Spirit has been applied to our lives and he wakes us up from the dead, we follow Jesus wherever he leads. Look at verse 25 with me. For you were straying like sheep, but have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. Return is a synonym for repent. 
right? If you may be here this morning and you're thinking that enduring suffering for Jesus sounds utterly revolting. You may have realized that you've grown up in the church, you married a Christian, you're raising your kids to be Christians, yet you have never actually had your faith tested. We live in North Texas. The culture is changing, but we're pretty well insulated from a lot of the persecution that goes on in the world. You may have never actually had your taste, your, your faith tested, especially if you're young, my age. To endure injustice silently, like Jesus did it on the cross, that might sound impossible to you. And brother and sister, that is exactly where God wants you. That is where he wants you. He wants you to give up. You can't conjure up this kind of endurance. You can't make believe love for Jesus that is willing to suffer, even die for Jesus. This kind of love is being offered to you by the only one who can do it. Friend, Jesus willingly suffered for your salvation. He is offering you forgiveness in his name. If you are realizing this morning that you have never suffered for Jesus, the next step is not to now go seek out some extravagant display of love for Jesus. It is to receive Jesus' extravagant display of love for you. It is to look and believe to trust and obey, to look at Jesus and trust him for the forgiveness of your sins, to look to Jesus and trust him to heal you of all of your soul's sickness. It's to trust him to give you everything that you need so that when the cross comes, you can endure it. To return to the shepherd as a straying sheep is to stay right behind the shepherd. We talked about this analogy last week, if you remember. Jesus is the great shepherd, and he's calling his sheep from all over the world, everywhere. He's calling his people to repent and believe. He gives them life. He's died for them, and now he's leading us in resurrected life. Where Jesus goes, his sheep follow. And that includes walking in sacrificial love. So what does this look like in your life this week? What does it look like to walk in the footsteps of Jesus in sacrificial love? There are many ways. And I encourage you, even over lunch today with your kids, with your spouses, with your friends, or you'll have over for lunch, discuss this. What would it look like this week for us to walk in sacrificial love? I just want to give four ways this morning and then we'll be done. First, trust Jesus to empower you to sacrificially love your family. Let's start with spouses. If you're married, your primary calling is to love your spouse sacrificially. Husbands is to love your wife sacrificially. Wives is to love your husband sacrificially. The person who ought to be the primary beneficiary of Jesus' power in you is the person you promised your whole life to. I'll never forget the words that my pastor told me on my wedding day in front of 200 witnesses. He looked me dead in the eyes and he said, Jacob, true love is always seasoned with sacrifice. 
when meeting a couple uh, who's been married longer than I have, an opening question I love to ask is, what's the secret to staying married this long? Just the other day at a coffee shop, I met, I met, met a couple. They'd been married for 58 years. Amazing. And, and these people weren't Christians. And the answer is generally the same. I've done this for years. I've asked people this question for years. You can be thinking about what answer you'd give me if I asked you. But here's what I've heard after six years of asking people this question. I've asked Christians, non-Christians, atheists, agnostics, secularists, you name it. I've asked people, and generally I get two answers. Number one, forgiveness at all costs. And two, giving 100%. Give 100% and give forgiveness. Practice unconditional forgiveness. Unconditional. That is the wisdom I'm receiving from the world, and that's biblical, to love your spouse with unconditional forgiveness, to practice unconditional uh, service. Christians in our marriages, we don't keep score, right? We don't keep score against our spouses. The score gets reset every time someone scores a point. Christians, Look at the sacrifice that Jesus poured out on your life and love him more than your need to get even or to receive what you feel like you're not getting back in return. When you sacrificially love your spouse, you are witnessing powerfully to your spouse that Jesus' love is worth losing everything for. So loving our spouses sacrificially. The second way, trust Jesus to empower you to sacrificially love your children. Parents, shepherd your children with God in the middle. It's not between you and them, right? It's not them sinning against you. When they disobey you, they're committing a sin against God. Honor your father and mother that it may go well for you. Your child isn't learning to love you ultimately, but to learn to love and obey God ultimately. And brothers and sisters, when we sacrificially love our children, you are witnessing powerfully to your children that Jesus' sacrificial love is worth losing everything for. Third way, trust Jesus to empower you to sacrificially love your church. The goal of church membership is not to get all the benefits of church membership. We're not paying a tithe and receiving benefits in return. The goal of church membership is to know and love Jesus. Pour yourself into your church. You want to know what pleases Jesus? You want to know what gets Jesus excited? Find out what Jesus is willing to die for. And brothers and sisters, if I'm reading my Bible correct, Jesus died for his bride, the church. What am I doing if I'm not loving them with that same kind of love? When we sacrificially love our church, we are powerfully witnessing to our church across the row, across the table, that Jesus' sacrificial love is worth losing everything for. Finally, last way, trust Jesus to empower you to sacrificially love even those who hate you. Don't be afraid of being spoken against as a Christian. If that's our mantra, we want to do whatever it takes not to be spoken against, we are not going to be following Jesus where he led. Christians can expect suffering. 
in the name of Christ. We can expect suffering for doing good in the name of Christ. We can expect it, we can anticipate it, and we can prepare for it. Recognize that there is an eternal weight of, uh, for suffering and justice. God is watching us. He's watching us and he's watching over us. You know, the ancients, our, our brothers and sisters from generations ago, they dreamt about persecution. They looked for it. They even provoked it. If any of you have ever read Fox's Book of Martyrs, you read about the first couple centuries and you find this pattern of these crazies who were following Jesus asking God for the grace of martyrdom. They're like, Lord, please let this be the year that I get crucified for you. They were asking for it. They were going out seeking it. Now, that's a major misstep. If we're going out seeking to die for Jesus, going out seeking persecution, we're missing the point. But their theology is good, which is when we love Jesus to the point of ultimate sacrifice, it proves to the world that Jesus is alive. It proves to the world that Jesus is who he says he is in his word. Our lives, when we're willing to sacrifice anything for Jesus, proves to the world beyond any kind of apologetic that can with a waterproof argument that Jesus is worth losing everything for. If we're really living for Christ, trouble will find us. It will. When suffering comes, we are being given a huge opportunity to follow Jesus. Enduring suffering for Christ, brothers and sisters, is a powerful witness. Just as Jesus' endurance and suffering is an example to us, our endurance and suffering is an example to our neighbors that points to Christ. First Peter chapter 2, verse 15, Peter tells us this, For this is the will of God, that by doing good you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. Anyone can argue against propositions, and no one can argue with a Christian life faithfully lived. When we go out in the world and we see public figures, pastors, leaders falling, when we see brothers and sisters that we've looked up to for a long time falling, the answer isn't to start pointing fingers or to start excusing sin. The answer is to keep following Jesus don't turn to the left, don't turn to the right, don't look back, keep following him. Because, brothers and sisters, Jesus came to die, to give his life as a ransom for our sins. If we've trusted in Jesus, our sins are paid for. We are alive to righteousness, which means the Holy Spirit is reigning from our hearts to empower us to do whatever it is that Jesus calls us to do no matter how great the sacrifice. Your suffering for the sake of Christ is an apologetic that not even the most committed atheist can refute. So let's pray now and ask God to empower us through His Spirit to follow Him no matter what. Lord, this morning, I confess that what... 1 Peter 2 describes is, is not something that my life often emulates. I don't find myself suffering for you all that often. I find myself enjoying the sweet benefits of being in your family, of being part of, of your family, of being part of your bride, thinking about the future, God. 
I pray that you would be preparing this church family for whatever lies ahead. Lord, if suffering is coming, I pray that you prepare us for it. If sacrifice is coming, I pray that you would prepare us for it. Lord, there are many in this room who have endured great sacrifice, who have suffered injustice, and you have seen it, and you will reward it. God, even in our lives right now, there might be some here this morning who are enduring injustice even now, who are tempted to write out all the details, to hold the score, to keep score against those who are hurting them. And Lord, I pray that even now, we would be trusting you. You always judge justly, and you love to reward sacrifice in the name of Jesus. We look to Christ, the author and the finisher of our faith, and we worship him this morning. In Jesus' name, amen.